This episode is hosted by Lee Atchison. Lee Atchison is a software architect, author, and thought leader on cloud computing and application modernization. His most recent book, Architecting for Scale, is an essential resource for technical teams looking to maintain high availability and manage risk in their cloud environments. Lee is the host of his podcast, Modern Digital Business, an engaging and informative podcast produced for people looking to build and grow their digital business with the help of modern applications and processes developed for today's fast-moving business environment. Subscribe at mdb.fm and follow Lee at leeatchison.com. Web infrastructure has evolved from individual servers to shared hosting services to virtual machines and virtual functions. The future of the internet, however, is looking toward a much more distributed computation model. Blockchain technology is central to the future of this modern internet. But blockchains are still in their infancy, and to most people, blockchains are intimately tied to cryptocurrencies. But the use of blockchain is substantially larger than that of crypto. Blockchains provide a model for distributed computation that allows no centralized ownership and no centralized control of large-scale applications. Celestia is developing blockchain technology that enables these modern distributed applications. Nader Dabit is in developer relations at Celestia and is an expert in blockchain technology, and he is my guest today. Nader, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for having me, and it's a pleasure to be here. Now, you're kind of a regular on this show, aren't you? This is what, your fourth time, I think? This is my fourth time. I think that every time I pivot into kind of like a new direction or a new focus in my career, I used to be invited back on here. So here we are again, and I am kind of working on something a little different. So excited to talk about that. Cool, cool. So let's get started here. So why don't we start out by, you know, why is it that you know, non-centralized distributed applications are going to be so important to the future of the internet? I think that they just bring a different type of use case and they allow you to build different types of applications than we could in the past, I guess you could say. I don't really look at them though, like they're going to replace all of our existing infrastructure, like some people might kind of try to talk about or maybe position, you know, blockchains as. Instead, I think they kind of bring unique properties that you can't get out of a traditional software stack or a traditional database. And they allow you to do things and they also allow for different and new and I would say even improved building blocks for certain use cases for developers. So I think the way I look at it is kind of like how we've had other innovations that have happened in tech that didn't necessarily disrupt everything. They may have disrupted certain areas. Things like AI and machine learning is a good example of this. The mobile platform, native mobile, I guess is what I'm saying. And, you know, when these new platforms or these new technologies come around or these new primitives, they allow you to do things that you maybe couldn't have done in the past, but they didn't necessarily replace the things that were there before them. So that's kind of the way that I look at blockchains. Cool, cool. So it's not that it's going to revolutionize the software industry, but it's going to create a new tool and a tool set for developers to use in order to build a different breeds of different classes of applications. That's what you, what you think. Yeah, that's kind of the way I would say. And, and it might disrupt and revolutionize certain areas, certain industries or certain yeah. industries. Yeah. But maybe not everything for sure. Not everything. 
(laughs) (laughs) So this is still a relatively new concept. And I think most listeners of this podcast are aware of what we're talking about in general, using blockchain for these applications, but there's probably still many who are not. Can you give some example use cases where blockchain can, or well, even without talking about blockchain, where a non-centralized application technology can help? What's the type of application that would be able to take advantage of that? Well, let's talk about a couple of different areas that I'm extremely excited about. I mean, the core, I would say, introductory use case that everyone's aware of is digital scarcity. And that's kind of how we came about with the original blockchain, which was Bitcoin, which enabled like this idea of a digital currency that wasn't created by a centralized institution like the United States or a bank or anything like that. And regardless of like if you believe it's worth anything or not, there is a market for it. And I think that digital scarcity and digital currencies were kind of like the initial use case that were you know enabled by this technology. And beyond that, though, I mean, I think that's a really exciting area to kind of talk about in the sense that it enables people like around the world to have access to stable financial infrastructure that can be sent peer to peer without a lot of centralized intermediaries or people that might be, you could say, gatekeeping or not allowing certain types of people to do certain things. That's for sure a really powerful use case. But what's more interesting to me are the use cases around kind of having public immutable backends and infrastructure that would kind of take what we've been seeing with open source software and applying that to actual data and infrastructure and being able to kind of compose APIs, building blocks with other people's data, other people's backends. And where we're going with the future of kind of like the improvements that we're seeing that enable lower cost transactions and faster and, and you know better infrastructure where we can maybe build out the types of applications on a peer-to-peer network or a blockchain that we might have used a traditional database for in the past are pretty exciting areas of focus for me. Cool, cool. So obviously you, you started to talk about that, but blockchain is the the key technology that's enabling these non-centralized distributed applications. Can you tell me how does blockchain actually do that? How does it enable the building of these sorts of applications or these sorts of capabilities? Well, when we think about a traditional database like AWS, we had you know dozens of databases that you could you could use and build with. They were all, for the most part, some type of like implementation of an open source database. You know, you might have MySQL database, and we would run like a hosted version of that. We also had our own things like DynamoDB. And the main difference between using a blockchain as a database versus a traditional database is that I at AWS could literally go into my database and I can update something and I could delete a bunch of rows. I could do whatever I wanted. But in a peer-to-peer distributed blockchain network or a blockchain, you instead have consensus between everyone in the network to kind of make updates. So if I go into someone else's data and try to make an update, it will be rejected and it won't be propagated throughout the network. So you now have kind of without a trusted intermediary, the ability to have consensus around the state of an application or the state of a database. And you're kind of then able to have other people that are, that can all share and interact with this application, with this database in a trustless way without a centralized like intermediary 
or without having to worry about state or anything you know being updated without the consent of, I guess, the owner of that state. It's not just update, but also access, right? You don't necessarily, not everyone can, even though it's a distributed and, you know, the data is available everywhere, the data itself isn't interpretable without permission to get the right data out of it. Yeah. I mean, most of the time, blockchain networks have public data. So like that's another property. uh, That's something that's obviously a lot different than the traditional database that might be hidden behind some type of like API that only allows certain uh, read capabilities. So like, therefore, you kind of think about them a lot differently. You probably wouldn't want to store highly sensitive information there unless it was like encrypted. And therefore, the use cases would be quite different for what you might store there. But I think in general, like the right operations, you know, would be that anyone can interact with the protocol and probably interact with it. But obviously, you couldn't kind of overwrite maybe the data that was owned or created by person that wasn't yourself, but everyone should be able to kind of just read everything. I think another core difference is having to do with like how identity works. In the traditional tech stack, we typically identify someone using personal information. So even though like a user ID might be the key in the database that recognizes who this user is, there is an association with that ID somewhere in the system that would say, okay, this person's name, this person's email, this person's phone number, et cetera. But uh, for the most part, in blockchain applications, you're identified by an address. Now, you can choose to kind of associate that address with your own personal information. But for the most part, it's just going to be like an ID, an address that is essentially kind of anonymous as far as like identifying the actual person behind that transaction. Yeah, I've been hearing a lot about identity management in particular with blockchain, and that is one particular use case, and that is the ability to create an identity that is shared among multiple independent applications without any single application owning that identity. You know, so you can you control your identity, nobody else controls it. I'm assuming there's lots of other examples like that as well, too. So how does blockchain do this? How does blockchain inherently work? In the 30-second view, not the 36-hour <laughs> view. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you basically have a network of computers that are all essentially running the same application. And if I make an update to the state of that application or the state of that quote unquote like database or the blockchain, it will then kind of propagate throughout the network. And then the nodes of that network will come to a consensus and they will update the state. And then if if someone else tries to read that later on, then hopefully they're going to kind of then get that updated value. And there's different ways. So like when you think of the origin of a blockchain, it was really just a single use case. It was basically cryptocurrency. You know, like you had Bitcoin, you had Litecoin. Most of these implementations were just digital scarcity. They were like currencies, I guess you could say. And then we had after these basic use cases, Ethereum kind of came around and this idea of a smart contract and a shared computer that allowed you to not only have tokens or currencies, but also state and execution and smart contracts and essentially run applications on this distributed network. So if I wanted to build out even something like we might think of as a traditional web application, like a blog, I could kind of build that data model into this smart contract, deploy it to this shared computer and then everyone could access that and everyone could, you know, read that 
And it was more than just obviously keeping up with a ledger of, of values, which was kind of the original use case. And I think like we're continuing to evolve past that. You know, I think the use cases are becoming broader and broader as the technology is getting better and more efficient, less energy, you know, like a lot of the issues that used to be stopping people from being interested in blockchains had to do with the um, energy that was used by proof of work. Most blockchains are either already using or moving towards environmentally friendly consensus. So kind of, you know, we're continuing to really evolve what a blockchain is, you know, and even how they work. And I think that some of the stuff we're going to talk about today goes beyond the current architectures of blockchains into kind of where we think the future of, of architectures are looking. But like essentially, like when you think of the, of the blockchain, going back to your original question, you have like four core mechanisms. You have data, you know, you just have data that's stored. You have the consensus, which is essentially the ordering of that data. And then you have an execution layer that kind of runs the logic of to kind of like come up with the state, the current state of what the data like actually looks like for users to consume. So every time you save something, you know, into a blockchain, it gets stored. Every transaction is kind of like, you know, saved in that ledger. But you can't really just read all that and come to a conclusion of what all that means, you know, because you kind of are just keeping up with all of these changes. You need some type of calculation to kind of determine the current state. So the execution environments or the execution layers kind of give you that. So when you think of Ethereum, the Ethereum virtual machine kind of is that. You have all these transactions that have happened over time, but you can't really just go and read those without and, and determine, you know, what the state is. You need some type of execution environment to kind of like essentially process all of those transactions, give you the final outcome of what has happened, and then you kind of use that as your state, I guess you could say. Yeah, so in a typical Ethereum network, then the the data by itself is meaningless without the execution layer on top of it that knows how to interpret the entries that are added to the blockchain and to calculate that, if you will, into the correct data format. That's kind of one of the disadvantages of Ethereum is that those two are tied closely together, right? You, It's hard to change that execution layer without also affecting the data layer. And I'm, I'm not an expert to understand exactly the details of how that works with Ethereum, but Celestia, one of the things you're trying to do there, if correct me if I'm getting this wrong, is you're trying to separate those two so that you're trying to separate the data layer from the, the execution layer. Is that a gross simplification of what Celestia is trying to do? Yeah, the core innovation of Celestia, the founder of Celestia, his name is Mustafa Al-Bassam, his original like idea and vision that has kind of been driving the way, not only for our own team, but also for other teams now and other protocols in Web3 is that you can decouple the core functions of a blockchain and you can unlock a lot of different, I would say, improvements versus what we had before. And it's kind of like not just one thing that you can point to. There's quite a few things. But when you look at, I guess, one really easy to grok understanding of like why this might be important is that when you look at Ethereum, Ethereum is, is essentially almost like a shared server like we would look at in, in the traditional tech stack. Like when I deploy an application to AWS, I'm not going to go and find a server that like a million other applications are using and share the execution that those people are using because then we would be you know very resource constrained. Ethereum kind of works like that today where we have this single execution environment. 
every NFT project out there, you know, like to some extent, not really everyone, obviously, but like most applications up until, you know, a few months ago, maybe a year ago, were all deployed for the most part to Ethereum. It was like, you know, the most widely used smart contract platform. So all these applications are sharing this single execution environment. They're sharing this single monolithic blockchain that really, you know, only I think handles up to 30 transactions per second. It's, it's kind of crazy when you think about it, right? And then on top of that, not only all these applications are sharing that limited bandwidth, but all of the users of those applications. So what happens when you, you know, actually want to scale this stuff to be globally used and adopted like the vision of, of some of us, right? It's obviously not going to work that way. Even if you were able to scale this single execution environment to something like, I don't know, 50,000, 100,000 transactions per second, that pales when you look at things like DynamoDB at AWS, where we were handling 100 million operations per second for a single application. We're not even in the same, like, you know, order of magnitude. Order of magnitude, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> One of the things that we're obviously starting to move towards is this idea of more like application-specific chains and roll-ups and layer twos where instead of having like this trying to force vertical scaling, you're having more horizontal scaling where every application could theoretically in the future be running on its own blockchain. And the underlying data could be just stored on like a data availability layer, but the execution isn't shared. So therefore, you're able to kind of say, okay, these users of this application are going to be on this chain. These users of this application will be on this chain. The core challenge at this point is then like this cross-application communication, which is something that we're having to solve anyway, just because of how we're moving. And that's kind of like one core difference in our vision Versus maybe some of the more monolithic blockchains like Ethereum, Solana, and I don't know, just most of the ones that you see out there. So the benefit here is you're allowing the easy creation of multiple blockchains, application-specific blockchains for application-specific data, but which allows horizontal scalability across the number of applications that you support or that are running in the network. But you still have to solve the problem of applications talking to each other and sharing data. And that's where the cross-application data sharing that you were talking about comes into play. Can you talk a little bit more about the types of things you're doing to solve those problems? How do you move data from one application to another? Yeah, sure. I mean, and, and that's just like one of the core use cases. There's actually a handful others. Because right now, most applications that are trying to scale are doing so via like layer twos or, or at least in the, the Ethereum ecosystem. And they're using kind of this modular approach where, again, like a modular blockchain is a blockchain that separates the core properties of a blockchain and doesn't do all of them. So it essentially outsources at least one of them. Again, those four being data availability, consensus, settlement, and execution. So with that in mind, you could look at Ethereum as kind of moving in this direction where instead of everyone executing on the layer one, we're you know, starting to see more and more like layer twos where people transact. The layer two rolls up batches of these transactions and posts them to that underlying L1. And therefore, you're kind of increasing the throughput because most of these transactions are happening you know, at this higher level. But what you run into, even at this, you know, with this scaling property, which is much better than what we had before, is that you still have that bottleneck of execution on that underlying settlement layer. 
So what we saw happen, and this is one of the reasons why I started really trying to kind of figure out how we can fix this. Because when I was working in this space, there was a situation where like an NFT project like launched something that was really popular. And the layer two scaling solutions, their prices went up significantly to the point where like a single transaction was in the range of like a few dollars to like a few tens of dollars. And for the use cases that most of us that are in this space believe in, you know, low, very low cost payment transfers in places around the world where paying even like a few cents for a transaction is probably not feasible because we're, we're thinking, okay, if we want to make this accessible for payments, for drinking a coffee, you know, you don't want to pay five or 10 cents even for that. You need like, in my opinion, like sub penny, yeah, below a penny or a penny transactions. And if you want to build stuff like social media applications, it needs to be fractions of that even. So like when I saw that happen, I, I immediately was just like, okay, I need to take a step back because like what we're doing right now isn't working. Like who's trying to actually solve the scalability challenges that we have and what are some ideas around how this can be solved. So I did spend some time after that diving into a handful of like networks and most of the networks, in my opinion, with the exception of maybe Cosmos and Celestia, were kind of like all attacking it from the same direction. They were building out different monolithic layer ones that were Maybe they would be experimenting around like sharding, which does add some scalability properties, but it's not like an end goal. Only limited. Yeah. Yeah. Most of them were taking like the approaches of essentially just vertical scalability. They want to make the execution environment faster, better, which is great. But there will always be a constraint when everyone's kind of sharing the same execution environment. And like that seems to be very, very straightforward at this point. And that was kind of like the realization that I had. So when I read about this idea of how Celestia was approaching all these different areas to kind of make scalability a thing, it was pretty, you know, compelling for me. And it was kind of like, okay, I want to literally change what I'm doing for work and go work for these people. And like I, I approach them and that's kind of like how, where I'm at now. So that's kind of like just a slight detour from what we were saying exactly, but hopefully it adds more context around kind of like, you know, some of the ideas that we're going to cover are probably in more depth here. Yeah. So you're using the basic blockchain only for essentially ordering and for availability, right? And for making the data available and knowing the order of which different things occurred and the consensus protocols are part of that as well too, I believe. But the rest of the execution and the, all the meaning that's applied to the data, et cetera, is all taken out of the blockchain and done essentially in owned applications that are unrelated to the blockchain. This is correct. So the original paper that was written in 2019 for this proposal of what Celestia is now was called Lazy Ledger. And Lazy Ledger was essentially saying we can build a lazy blockchain in the sense that it doesn't do everything. It kind of is lazy in the sense that it only does these things. And we can really specialize and focus on doing these core base things that you need essentially to to bootstrap security in a blockchain, which are consensus and data availability. And then we can still have these other layers like settlement and execution. And those different layers can actually specialize in their own right as well. We can experiment at the virtual machine level because they're not all tied together. It's a lot easier to experiment. We can build settlement layers 
that are built specifically for rollups as opposed to something like Ethereum, which also has to continue honoring uh, execution from single transactions. There's a lot of stuff that we can do to focus on those areas, but there's also one core innovation that is enabled to enable scalability at the base layer that haven't really that we haven't really touched on yet. That's pretty nuanced and somewhat complicated, but essentially when you think about scaling block size in a blockchain, that's kind of like how you can scale throughput. When we think about throughput or scalability in the traditional tech stack, we're essentially just focused on transactions or operations per second, maybe without negatively affecting the network or the state of the application. So if I can say my application is handling 10 users you know, per second or whatever, and they're making like five op- five reads and writes per second or something, and then I get an influx of like a million users and my application will scale, then I've achieved scalability and, and everything is great. And my application is, if it's still working, then I've achieved scalability and, and I don't really have much to worry about. But it's different in the blockchain world because databases, the only thing you have to worry about is scaling. You don't really have to worry about, I mean, there's obviously a lot to that sentence, but you know, just scaling the database is pretty straightforward in the sense of like, if it works, it works. In the blockchain space, you have this nuance around decentralization and scalability. So when you think about the different scalable solutions, scalability solutions that are out there in the blockchain world, you have something like Ethereum, which people for the most part agree is very, very decentralized. And then you have other blockchains which trade decentralization for throughput. And a couple of examples of those are maybe Solana, where if you want to run a node that essentially is handling and validating these transactions and processing them, you need to have quite a bit of money and and quite a bit of resources to kind of run the infrastructure. So therefore, there are not as many people running the nodes as there are in Ethereum, which is a lot lower barrier to entry. And then you have even networks like Polygon, Sidechain, which are even more centralized, which only have a handful, of, at least to, to my knowledge, maybe, of people who are kind of in control of how that network functions and therefore are, are less decentralized. The point is I'm getting at is like in the blockchain world, you can actually increase throughput by increasing the block size, but that puts more requirements on the node operators to have larger resources to kind of operate these nodes. So to solve this, so it's a trade-off between performance and and decentralization. And decentralization. Yeah, the ultimate goal would be how can we make it to where everyone in the world can run a node, but we can also increase the block size. So therefore, how can we build nodes that can process these transactions without having high hardware requirements? But when we think about the types of nodes in a blockchain, there are two main types of nodes: there are full nodes and light nodes. Full nodes literally download and execute every transaction that's ever happened in the history to come up with the current state. And these are the most secure nodes that you can run. But they do, because of the requirements to kind of process all this information, require a lot of resources. So therefore, not a lot of people run these nodes. And the barrier to entry to running them is is, is usually higher as well than what is known as a light node, which really doesn't do all that. All it does is process the block headers And it kind of trusts that the information that's been given to them is correct. And I'm going all over all this to kind of say one of the things that Celestia has has kind of, or the the team at Celestia, and more specifically, there was a white paper that was written by a handful of people, including Vitalik Buterin, who's 
the founder of uh, Ethereum and our founder, Mustafa Al-Bassam, that they determined a way to have something as known as trust-minimized light clients. And trust-minimized light clients give you the same security guarantees of a full node for the processing power running a light node. And they do this using this innovation called data availability sampling. And data availability sampling is a pretty complex and nuanced thing to kind of really dive into here. But the way you could think of it is that instead of having to download the entire block to make sure that data has been published to the network, they can download a small portion, a very, very small fraction of of the total data from the block to get that same security guarantee. And a random sampling is it's a random sampling done through this method called erasure coding or this procedure called erasure coding that has been around for a while, but it's only really been applied in the blockchain world, I think, in this scenario. But erasure coding, data availability sampling, and therefore enabling these trust minimized light clients enable almost the same security guarantees of a full node on a very low, easy like to run node. And also erasure coding and data availability sampling enables block size scalability to increase based on the number of nodes in the network, which isn't necessarily what we had before with blockchains like Ethereum and and Bitcoin. Because you could have a million nodes, but it's not going to increase the throughput of the network. With data availability sampling and, and erasure coding, the more nodes that are on the network, the larger the block size can become without affecting how much... I would say bandwidth is required to kind of verify the data or to process the data. Each node still only does random samples, but you end up doing more random samples by having more nodes. Exactly. Yeah. You scale them out, you scale the nodes. Better coverage. And then you have larger. So not only are we improving, you know, areas that we've talked about before, but we're, but we're also enabling more bandwidth. And the larger the block gets, all we have to do is have more nodes running or, or more nodes running, the larger the blocks can get and, and kind of have this almost infinite scalability property, which we've never really seen before. So not only though are we doing this, but like since they've kind of proposed this and started building it out, we're now seeing other blockchains kind of like take similar approaches, including Ethereum, including Polygon with Avail, including a handful of others. So this isn't just kind of like what we're doing, even though our team along with, you know, mainly our team, along with some other, you know, people, like I mentioned with that white paper with Vitalik and other folks, kind of like innovated this idea. It's not just us that that are kind of taking this, you know, approach. There are other teams that are kind of out there. Sounds like this is the TSA approach for blockchains, right? You you don't have to do a pat-down search for everybody. You just have to threaten to do a pat-down search for everybody and just do it once in a while. And as long as you do that, people, well, not always, but you you, <laughs> you, you are more than likely to catch violators because you don't know when you get in a line whether you're going to be able to go through a more extensive pat-down or not. I like the analogy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We'll see if people in, in Twitter agree with you, whether it's a good analogy or not. I'm not sure, but it, it, it's something anyway. So you're a very, very, very young company. I believe you got your first funding round in just last year, right? In 2021, and you built an MVP then. Is that correct? Yeah, they've been together from 2019-ish, and they've been building, you know, I'm not sure exactly when they started actually writing code, to be quite honest. But yeah, very, very young company, probably at the most like two years old. Okay. And you now have a development network called Testnet that's been deployed. You, is that, is that that's correct? Right. And is that, that's essentially a evaluation framework that people can go in and test this technology on your framework. Is that a 
Yeah, it allows developers to go in, run nodes, send transactions, and maybe build applications and, and protocols on top of the network as we continue to iterate and develop and improve. And also the users that are kind of building on, on the test net can give us feedback around improvements and stuff like that. So as people started to do this, what, what types of apps are you seeing that people are looking at developing if they're experimenting with testnet? Yeah, I mean, so because Celestia is really just doing this really basic ordering and you know consensus and data availability, there's quite a bit of room for people to build because you know in most blockchains if you're a blockchain developer you're either a protocol developer or you're a smart contract developer so you're building that underlying protocol probably in some lower level language like go or rust and then a smart contract programmer is going to be writing smart contracts and something like you know solidity maybe maybe rust as well but with a celestia you can do quite a bit more so you can write smart contracts very soon in solidity and deploy them either directly as a rollup to Celestia or to a rollup that's been deployed on Celestia. But you can also build up protocol-like level stuff. And because we're so early on, there's a lot of stuff that needs to be built. Things like wallets, which are you know being worked on. Things like block explorers. Things like you know API data visualization and and all types of stuff. So without going into like too many areas, there's like five different like core ways that you could probably build on Celestia. You can, like I mentioned, you can deploy smart contracts on a, a rollup that's that's been deployed to Celestia. You can deploy your own rollup, your own almost like your own blockchain, like I mentioned before, to Celestia. You can, you know, actually build a settlement layer, which is probably a little too nuanced discussion to kind of go into here. But it's another layer that you can kind of build on. Yeah, and there's just so much opportunity to kind of build right now because it's still very early on. You know, to me, the three biggest innovations that have happened in blockchain, and this is just my, and I worked with this team, so I might be biased, but I think like Bitcoin, you know, the original blockchain was like a huge paradigm shift and a new way for us to build decentralized applications. That was kind of like a big innovation. The next one was the Ethereum virtual machine and Ethereum, where any developer in the world could essentially run a decentralized application by writing a handful of lines of code and a smart contract. And I think now with us breaking apart these pieces and having this scalability unlock with modular blockchains, I think this is kind of going to be the next iteration of like a core paradigm shift really in how we kind of think about how we're building applications. So there's, it's still extremely early and there's still a lot of work to do, but it's also probably a lot of upside if this is where things actually go, you know? Cool. So what's your plan for the future? Well, me personally, I mean, I'm pretty passionate about some of the use cases around these hopefully more scalable networks. So I think I really am excited about social graphs. I think that when we think about traditional social networks, there's a lot of things that are good and bad about them, right? You could you could point out a lot of good things and a lot of bad things. But one of the things that I think is not really great is how there are, you know, a lot of social networks that are out there. And if you want to build up like a network on one of them, you kind of need to start over from scratch every time. And you can't really share that data between the different applications. So if I build a following of a thousand followers on Twitter and I go to YouTube, I don't really have those followers and they build it back up. But also the data itself is very brittle. So Twitter has an API and they've gone through a lot of ups and downs with their API. You know, people used to build out million dollar companies on top of Twitter's API And then they would just shut it down or they would just change it up because 
the core value proposition, I think, for Twitter, at least at the time when they were kind of making all these changes, was that if you're using Twitter, you know, you can you can sell ads and stuff. But if someone's using that Twitter data in a better way than than you are using it, then maybe they're going to start attracting users away from your platform. So therefore, they're going to shut that off. But if there is a, an immutable data source for this social media data that other people can build front ends on top of, then we can kind of say we have a single back end that a hundred front ends can kind of share and we can kind of compete on who can build out the best user interface. But I can also port, I also have portability of that data myself. If I want to do stuff with it, I can also take my followers across multiple platforms. So if someone spins up like a TikTok front end on top of this back end, and a good example of this is Lens Protocol, where they've built out a really, really great prototype, not just a prototype, it's actually a working social graph that allows you to kind of have this data portability. If I build up my network on this platform, I can kind of take it with me. So I really like those use cases around public open data. Social graphs are one use case, mainly because there's billions of users that are on these existing social graphs, and we can offer a better user experience, then that's a a huge unlock. Another one is just low-cost payments and low-cost banking around the world with better fiat onboarding and offboarding, but maybe even better implementations for things like stable coins at point of sale systems. So if you live in the United States or you live in Europe, you don't really have to worry about a lot of this stuff, right? Because our currencies, you know, we might have like a five or 10% inflation, which we're going nuts over right now, right? But imagine (laughs) having like a thousand percent inflation every year. And imagine living in Lebanon where you literally can't even take the money out of your bank and it's going down by, I don't know, was it 10 or 20% every month? or even more than that. And then you can't even take it out. So a year later, you're down 90% and you're just kind of screwed. Imagine being able to bank on like a, a stable currency like the US dollar. And that's kind of you know game changing. I think the biggest challenge right now for cryptocurrencies in general are the fact that you can't really just go and buy groceries or buy a cup of coffee with them in most places. Argentina is doing a great job though and kind of innovating and having this more real world use case, cases like being built out into the real world. I think what we're going to see over the next couple of years is more better software that allows people running businesses to easily accept these things with like a a really easy to use app or something like that. And then low cost networks that allow someone to buy a cup of coffee with, you know, less than one penny transaction fee in a stable coin and things like that. So public open backends and low cost payments are the things that I'm excited about. Me personally, I'm just going to be building out and helping Celestia and the modular movement uh, move forward as we launch our main network, which will be in the early of 2023. Cool, cool. So if a developer is interested in experimenting with the testnet right now in Celestia, what should they do? Where do they go? Yeah, so we have a Discord. I would definitely go to the Celestia Discord, poke around, check out our documentation. We have two really, 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 in my opinion, I'm again biased, but great places for documentation. One is just the Celestia website which is less developer-focused and more just us diving into these concepts that we talked about in this interview in a little bit more detail with diagrams and stuff. It's called Learn Modular. So that's a really great resource. The Celestia developer documentation is a great place to go if you want to learn how to build or run a node or, or deploy like an application or a smart contract. So those two places are great places to go. I would also recommend maybe checking out this blog post, or it's not really a blog post. It's actually like a research paper almost called Pay Attention to Celestia that dives a lot deeper into some of these more technical concepts. 
And then finally, there's an interview called uh, The Disruptors from Delphi Digital, interviewing Mustafa Al-Bassam, who is the founder of Celestia. And it's really cool to hear him, the actual person that kind of came up with all this stuff that built this company, talk about his background and 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 where what influenced him about you know his his life that kind of put him in this direction. It's kind of one of the more interesting things about our company. I think it's his background. So definitely check out that podcast. Great. Thank you very much. My guest today has been Nader Dabit, who is in developer relations at Celestia and an expert in blockchain technology. Thank you, Nader, and uh, have a great day. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it.